Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files. With your host, David Axelrod. I want you to meet one of the most interesting, impressive, and inspiring people you probably don't know. Dr. Walter Massey is 85 years old. He began life in a brutally segregated Hattiesburg, Mississippi, got a scholarship after his sophomore year of high school to Morehouse College. He went there as a music major and left bound to become an eminent physicist. And from there, he's lived one of the most varied and accomplished lives of any American. The list of things he's done is too long to recite here, but it's an amazing story, which he shared with me during a recent conversation at the Institute of Politics. Dr. Walter Massey, it's good to be with you. I have to say, I wanted to do this podcast because, as I was saying before we started rolling, I don't know if there's a more accomplished Americans who Americans may not be familiar with than you. You have such an astonishing history. So I, I just want to tell the story and I want to hear the story. And I want you to explain some things to me. Okay. So uh, about science and other things. Oh, thank you. But thank you uh, uh, mm-hmm. tell me, this, this whole story begins in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Tell me about that. Tell me about your family and what Hattiesburg was like in the in the 40s and, and early 50s when you were growing up there. Well, I was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 1938. So I really grew up in the 40s and 50s when it was probably the height of, uh, of the depth, I'm not sure which, of this total segregation. Jim Crow. And, yeah, yeah, apartheid like almost. So the things that You've probably read about, others have read about water fountains, colored and white, not being able to go in the front door door of uh, stores, even if you could go in at all. The kind of constant uh, concern about whether or not you might do something which would cause the ire of the white community or white individuals to turn on you. So that was the, the whole atmosphere. We went to segregated public schools. Everything was segregated. What's that? It, well, let me just ask no, you, no. Uh, what, did, what does that do to the psyche of a young man? Well, I was about to say, actually, I had a fairly happy childhood. I mean, very happy when I look back. When you're a youngster, you don't see the world a lot. You see your closest surroundings. And we had a vibrant black community and maybe part of it was because of the segregation so there were black businesses in the community my mother was a elementary school teacher and became a elementary school principal and my father worked for a company called hercules powder company which has a fascinating history but it, it was spun off by dupont it was forced to spin it off i've learned all this later 
but it was very enlightened company. They had a co-op you could shop in. So my little world, you know, looking back, was was happy within those within those constraints. So it, I don't recall being traumatized by my surroundings. Before you yeah. go on, let me ask yeah. you what, what, about your family history before your 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 parents. I guess it was your your uh, your mom and your stepdad uh, you grew up with. Talk about generations before. The furthest we could go back on my mother's side. I can't go back very far on my stepfather's or my biological father's side. Well, my biological father, yes. On my mother's side, Essex Lyles was the sort of a patriarch back, and he was the son of a black woman who just come out of slavery and a white northern uh, hmm. army. You know, who we have records of that. And he had 27 children. Oh, my God. <laughs> Legit, 27 legitimate children by five wives. He had children in his, he was in his 80s by his youngest wife who was in her 20s. And we've had somebody in the family who's really, you know, documented all yeah. this and looked back. And so we had, we have a lot of, of uh, Lyles, L-Y-L-E-S. And so his children... And my grandmother was his second oldest child, and uh, they lived in Mississippi. And she was, a, when I grew up, she was a domestic. Her husband worked for Mississippi Southern College. Both of my grandfathers did on my mother's and father's side, which is now Southern Mississippi University. And he worked there as a cook on the campus, which was not too far from us. And my paternal grandfather worked there as a handy person or janitor so they both worked for this college and my mother went to alcorn college with historical black college and she became pregnant with me in her freshman year with my father who was also at alcorn college and she quit to raise me <laughs> and he went then he got drafted into the army that was my biological father and they were friends more than lovers. It's got to happen to get pregnant, is what she tells me. And they remained friends throughout life. But he moved to Detroit and got remarried to my stepmother. And she remarried my Mr. Massey, who became my father when I was like two. And he's the one who raised me. And when you were six, mm -hmm. when you were 16 years old, you got a scholarship from the Ford Foundation and you went to Morehouse College as a 16-year-old. I did, and that was not something planned. My mother was taking courses to finish her degree at Jackson State then, and she was asked to drive the students who had been picked to go take this test. It was a nationwide competition. Mm -hmm. Ford Foundation sponsored it. And so I went along with the group. And was the idea to look for minority students? After no, no, no. More, there were only four historically black colleges in this program. There were about 20 colleges around the country, mostly white. And you chose to go to Morehouse? Well, no, I, I received the Morehouse scholarship. I see. Yeah. I see. So you, you arrived there younger than everybody else. What was that experience like? Well, no, it was a well-developed program, and I was, they did it for three years, and I was in the third cohort. And, and each cohort, there were about 15 to 20 students. So when I arrived, I was, there were about 15, 14 others 
in my group, and there were two cohorts that had already been there. So that was an atmosphere created. But it was still, there was, we were still a small minority. And I was very concerned. In fact, the second day I was there, I called my mother and told her I wanted to come home <laughs> because all of these guys, not all of them, but many of them were from big cities, Chicago, Detroit, even Atlanta. And they just done things and taken courses. They had a guy from Andover, you know, private school. And I just didn't think I could compete. And she, of course, didn't let me come home. But what happened was a, a major incident in my maturation. All, we had to take a placement exam. Every student in the freshman class, there were maybe 110 of us in small school. And they posted, this placement exam was to see which courses you should take, you know, based on your knowledge. But they could never do this today. But then they actually posted oh, wow. the results on the door, the freshman door. <laughs> you know, it's been terrifying. <laughs> And you must have approached that list with oh, a trepidation. I I, huh? You know, I almost started at the bottom, <laughs> but I turned out I was number five, and I was I was shocked. I really was. I mean, and it was a, that's so. I think back as the first time in my life I realized that I might be smart. Yeah, and I read I read somewhere that you went with the idea that you were going to be a music major. Well, I was going to be a jazz musician specifically uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. because we had friends of mine. Uh, uh, we'd started a group in the seventh grade called the Blue Gardenias. <laughs> we played rhythm and blues mostly, but we wanted to be jazz musicians. Yeah. Are your albums still available? <laughs> Should I look for the Blue Gardenias? The uh, Pandora, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but um, something happened in your freshman year that sort of changed the course of your life. And I'm interested in that, which was you found a physics professor who inspired you i did uh sabinus hobart christensen we call him chris and afterwards when i was older the danish um danish background but he had harvard phd and he was one of many whites who went south to teach in hbcu you know out of a sense of mission and really took the teaching really seriously and saw themselves there to help young people, young African-Americans move over up in life. So I took the freshman course and I really liked it. He, I guess he saw something in me and he urged me to take the next course. I only got a, what did I get? I got a C in the first year for this course, but I passed, which was, you know, <laughs> amazing to me. But yeah, I, I saw a quote of yours uh, from years ago. You did an interview with Physics Today and you said, when you're black and you grow up segregated, so much depends on, on how people think of you. In theoretical physics, no one reading your papers would know if you were black or white. There's no such thing as black physics. I thought it was interesting. Explain that. Well, when I, you have to remember, this, I finished college in 1958. Then I, I taught at Morehouse a year, which is uh, another story. But then I went to YSU for graduate school. And that, there was one, we had other black in my graduate school class, but there were no blacks in physics. Also, I'd like to do things. I was not a very outgoing person, really. I mean, I wasn't all that shy, but I really <laughs> liked doing things in kind of solitary way. And physics was a field you could do that in, especially theoretical physics. And your results were not, dependent on your having to convince people that you were could do it because you were not white 
you know, if you published a paper, this was the way I thought about it. And this was before the internet, before instant uh, social media and all that. You actually, the written paper you sent off to be reviewed and your picture wasn't on the paper or anything. And so the reviewers, peer reviewers had to review the results. And so my, the way I thought about physics, this is the way, in addition to liking it, that you can bypass a lot of the racial barriers. And this is where I'm in way out of my depth, but you, uh, you studied the uh, theoretical dense matter physics and quantum theory as it relates to helium was what you wrote about and how helium performed at low temperatures. Tell me, and I know this became, I mean, a couple of guys some years later, and you had something to do with the research that led to it, won a Nobel Prize for a study of some of this stuff. But tell me, what is the meaning of what you were studying and pursued over the years relative to helium and how helium performed? Well, I was doing theoretical physics the work for my thesis advisor was this is called Eugene Feinberg, who became another mentor like Chris in my life. And he had a group of students studying with him. And we were trying to understand the properties of liquid helium. Helium, when it's cooled down to close to absolute zero, becomes uh, what's called a superfluid. And it flows without friction. You've heard superconductors mm -hmm. where electricity flows without resistance. That's a, almost parallel to that in liquid helium. So it had, and in this superfluid state, it has a lot of other interesting properties that are unlike matter in its normal state. And so there are theories that, that underpin the, the understanding of that. And, and now we're way out yeah, of that. Yeah, but some people will do it. But what you're referring to is after that, when I came to Argonne, my first job here. Argonne National Laboratory. Argonne National Laboratory here in Chicago when I, 1966. I worked with a group of experimentalists who were trying to understand another interesting property of helium. That is, if you put sound waves into it, sound waves would travel, but like any wave, they deteriorate, disperse, attenuate. And that was an anomalous dispersion. They didn't behave as you would think it would. And we couldn't understand theoretically why that happened. And so when I went to Brown, a fellow colleague, Humphrey Maris and I, developed a theory that explained that. You mentioned you went to Argonne. Then you went to the University of Illinois, which was really your first teaching position. And I was struck by this statistic that uh, you were one of four or five black professors at the University of Illinois among 3,000. That's right. That's right. And shortly after you arrived there, you became kind of a fulcrum of organizing the black professors, organizing or advocating for black students on campus. I think there was an incident on your campus at that time where a couple of hundred, 264, I think, black students arrested for a peaceful protest at a peaceful protest on campus, and they came to you. But I just arrived on campus. I didn't have any furniture. I was single then. And I was sleeping on the floor waiting for my furniture to come the next day. I, I really didn't know any people. I knew the physicists who recruited me. And I, the phone rang, got a landline, of course. And this uh, boy said, Professor Massey. 
And that's what threw me. I'd never been a professor. <laughs> Uh, yeah, said this is David Addison, and he was president of the Black Student Association. And he said it was almost midnight. They arrested 200 or something or so, and the number I think exactly was 264 uh, black students who were protesting in the student union, and they're in jail, and we're trying to round up faculty members to come help get them released. And that's when I met Dave Addison. What was the protest about? Do you remember? Oh, yes, definitely. So this is 1968, mm-hmm. seven, when I go down. 68. 68, 68, right. And like many historically white schools, the University of Illinois was trying to recruit black students you know, to increase diversity, what wasn't even called diversity then, affirmative action. So the, the black students came, and the week before school opened, so they could go through sort of preparatory classes and counseling. And they lived in upper-class dorms. And so when school opened, they were moved into dorms, which they thought were much inferior. I see. But that was one of the immediate causes. I see. But their ongoing issues were uh, Illinois, you know, the best of intentions, like many schools, simply was not prepared to handle this many black students who many of whom were not themselves academically prepared mm-hmm. coming from inferior schools. And so the things they thought they could accomplish, it was just they just could not without a lot more effort. This, this raises an interesting yeah. question. I know part of your thrust moving forward, and you went to Brown as a professor and then you were dean there, was this issue of minority students, black students. And you took an interest not just in how the universities were dealing with this, but also in K through 12 education. You you got you took an interest in in Providence, Rhode Island, in in K through 12 education. And it raises the question about whether we are setting kids up to succeed. And I know you had a lot to do with establishing here in Illinois this uh, this Illinois Academy of Science, Math and Science, so, yeah. mm-hmm. and so on. But talk to me about that. Because it seems to me we thrust kids into a difficult position if we don't serve them well before they get to the university. Or if we do not give them the support they need, you know, once they're there. And this would apply to of students of, you know, any race or background. Mm-hmm. But this, the specific thing that made me convince me that this would be something I should do, I guess, three things. One, I, uh, I wanted to do something that went beyond just doing my research. Remember, this is the 60s, and I just, I really felt that I wasn't contributing anything to the civil rights movement or to racial advancement. You know, I was doing like obscure physics, many-body theory, (laughs) dispersion of sound and liquid helium. You know, what does that have to do with the civil rights movement? That was the reason I left Argonne to go to a campus in the first place. The other thing that prompted me was my when I taught a freshman physics course at Urbana, and I had many of these students in the course, and it was just clear they weren't prepared. I mean, it wasn't their fault. And we had remedial courses, tutorials, but my thinking was that that's not going to solve the problem, you know, by trying to fix after students on campus. So that's when I became interested. I said, well, maybe the issue is in the high school. If we have better science courses in high school, 
especially in inner city schools, as we call them then, then the students would be better prepared. So that's what led me to being. I th- this is something I can do, because I think. You know, I have, I'm, a, I'm a scientist, so I should be able to figure out how to teach science. And I can continue to do physics while also being able to do something that makes a contribution to racial advancement. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's something that you continue to do through various postings. Yeah. How do you think we're doing today? Do you think we've made strides? Oh, yes. We're not. You know, it's a standard phrase. We're not where we ought to be. Mm-hmm. We're not. But oh, for God's sakes, we've made we've uh, made tremendous advances. I mean, two of our newest faculty members are, are black women. One's gone to head the Princeton School of Engineering, mm. the physicist, and the other is a prominent astronomer. You know, I didn't think I'd live to see this actually. Mm-hmm. So you know, we've made tremendous progress. Yeah. When I got my PhD, I knew every other black PhD in physics in the country. Wow, there were only about ten of us. I think even yeah. in two, in nineteen. 19- 90, you wrote a piece in 1990, and there were like 343 or something PhDs in science and engineering out of like 14,000 in the country or something. That sounds right. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Bell Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. You went, to Ar- you went back to Argonne, where you did your postdoc, and you became director of the Argonne National Labs. It was an interesting time, because they were working on energy issues and, and alternative energy, and particularly nuclear energy. And Ronald Reagan comes along in 1980, and he's not terribly interested in alternative energy. Talk to me about that period of time and talk to me about nuclear energy and the focus on nuclear energy, because it seems to me that we're still debating this today. I came back, I was dean of the college at Brown, still 
doing physics. And Hannah Gray <laughs> recruited me. I had met her. Who was president of the University of Chicago. president of the University of Chicago. But I which, is rela- which, which Argonne is affiliated with the University of Chicago. That's right. Argonne, uh, University of Chicago operates Argonne mm-hmm. under contract with the Department of Energy, mm-hmm. which owns the lab. They own all the national lab. But I met Hannah when she was acting president, or interim president of Yale, at a Yale Brown football game, hmm. <laughs> which we lost in the last. <laughs> and she'll never let me forget that. <laughs> and then Brown gave her an honorary degree, and uh, my wife and I were her hosts, and we got to know each other. But she recruited me to come back to our Chicago to be director of Argonne in 1979. And that Jimmy Carter was president. And the lab then. Its major program, it's, it, it did research on a number of fields, as you pointed out. But its major program then, and it had been historically, it was uh, nuclear uh, energy, uh, reactor physics. And the month before I became, I came in June, I think, and in May, it, there was something called a, a near meltdown of uh, a nuclear reactor in Three Mile Island, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And nuclear energy had already been controversial because people's concerned about what do you do with waste and about meltdowns. Mm-hmm. And so that really made the whole field even more politically fraught in the United States. And and Argonne, we were so much involved in that. We were kind of at the center of a lot of debates about the funding of nuclear energy and reactor research. So I had to learn a lot about nuclear energy research and policy. And you guys made quite a few advances in that research then, but but tell me now, I mean, you hear this discussion now because lots of nuclear plants have been decommissioned or are in the process of being decommissioned uh, because of the concerns that you uh, mentioned and the evolution of other sources of energy. But there are plenty of people who argue that Maybe we should revisit this now, given the climate challenges that we have. I mean, do you see a future for nuclear in the energy mix, or is that, or is it going to fade away? Well, if there's, in my opinion, if there's no nuclear energy in, in our portfolio, we're not going to seriously do anything about climate change. I, just, I don't think I'm alone in that. I'm not. You know, I've been away from the field a long time, so I'm not an expert on the details, but there are many uh, kinds of new forms of, of nuclear reactors which are much safer. And so, the, And then the whole issue about radioactive waste is one that's still debated. But there are ways now that one believes you can deal with that. But it, I think it's a kind of a trade-off. And also, you had Chernobyl and mm-hmm. and the Japanese Fukuyama was due to the uh, the storm that came down. It, the reactor didn't naturally fail. There have not really been any serious nuclear reactor accidents in the world and not in this country. It's the Three Mile Island near meltdown. So yeah, I feel I feel very bullish about it. In addition to come back to direct Argonne, you you became quite a force in Chicago promoting the idea that Chicago could become a tech hub. And this was, you know, this was way back in the in the 80s that you began this. Tell me about that and tell me about sort of your view of what science and technology could mean for the city as a commerce 
as a, a part of its its commerce and development. Well, interestingly, a, a lot of the things that my, that I, myself and others were pushing for then are finally becoming beginning to take place. So I, you know, this is eighty two, eighty three, but before, there was something uh, passed called the Bayh-Dole Act. That was Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana mm-hmm. and, and Robert Dole yeah. from Kansas, Democrat and Republican. And the Bayh-Dole Act permitted federal contractors and universities to receive federal funds underpinning their research to actually commercialize that research. And that sort of coincided with the uh, same time when there was great concern about us becoming part of the Rust Belt. You know, the automobile industries were leaving the Midwest and we would follow Detroit. and we formed something called the Argonne University of Chicago Development Corporation, or ARCH, A-R-C-H, to do that, and created a fund, the ARCH Venture Fund. And what we were trying to do is what's happening now to a large degree is to incentivize university faculty members to uh, not necessarily direct their research towards the practical applications. Now they're doing that. But to at least be aware of the possibilities of those, and also to uh, to convince the financial community to invest, because all the venture funds were on the West Coast, a few on the Boston area. So we didn't have a, what now everybody calls an ecosystem. Right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have the research coming out of the universities and the labs. We didn't have the early stage venture capital to support it, and we didn't have uh, the the government, the state that would invest and kind of infrastructure you might need. And all of that has changed. It's just amazing to me. You left to uh, become uh, head of the National Science Foundation, where you served for a couple of years. And in that role, you uh, you continue to promote the idea of science education and how do we teach science education and how do we teach it not just to graduate students, but to kids. And that was a, a, a major initiative of yours. I inherited the initiative. It was started by my predecessor, uh, Eric Block, uh, to have the Science Foundation rather invest in pre-college education and to work with urban school systems. I, I really started that one with my colleague, Luther Williams. But it was something the foundation hadn't been doing to a large scale because the, the foundation's role was to support universities, you know, mainland research. So, yeah. We put a lot of uh, effort and energy in education and human resources directorate, as it was called. Uh, so that was really wonderful for me because here now, instead of trying to start a small program at Brown, you know, I, I think we had the directorate maybe had $800 million a year. So <laughs> you, know, you can do a little few Two things with $800 million yeah. a year. So yeah. I felt like it was to make a difference there. You also started something called the Directorate for Social, Behavioral, and Economic Sciences. And that, I think that that was sort of out of the box kind of thinking about science as something broader than the laboratory sciences that we, we know. Talk about what your thinking was there. We were supporting, we, the National Science Foundation, had always supported the social sciences, but they were a small part of the portfolio. So the social science community felt they were not getting the funding they needed to do their research, but also the visibility they needed 
to attract more people into the field, to be able to demonstrate the results of research. And they thought they could really, if they had their own directorate, they could do these things. Now, so why was that a big deal? The social sciences have always been controversial uh, at the National Science Foundation and any other place where they're supported. You have congressional oversight because by their very nature, you're dealing not just with pure science quantitative results, right? You're dealing with results about human behavior, policy, and those kinds of things, which spills over into the political Mm -hmm. social area. And Congress is just very skeptical. They've always been of that kind of research. And of course, certain parties, I think most of the Republicans are even more skeptical of it. And so we we were very cautious and very concerned about whether to do this because some people thought, well, keep it buried, you know, <laughs> don't make a big deal out of it. Don't shine light on it because you're just going to attract controversy. But I, I traveled around the country and met with social scientists. That was one of the most fascinating parts of my um, being there. I learned a lot. Did you get some skepticism from Congress? Did you have to? No, I had support. We had the uh, Democrats in control then, mm-hmm. and nobody really argued. There was a lot of caution about it, but we didn't get pushback. But I learned a lot about the social sciences. I made a lot of friends, and for a while, you know, I was kind of the, the darling of social sciences. They're even the oldest people in the social sciences who will come up to me and thank me for doing that. It's pretty really good for a physicist. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. I thought so. So let me just ask you about science generally. Okay. Because, um, I mean, I've been trying, I'm really interested, actually. I, I spent some time over at the uh, Pritzker School of Molecular Engineering, and I didn't realize the degree to which they were sort of working on some of the most pressing problems we face as, a, as humanity faces, you know, about energy and water and climate and, and looking for practical solutions to all of these things and many more, medical science, biological sciences as well. But we live in a very skeptical time. Politics has intruded, not just on the social sciences, but science itself. We saw it during the pandemic and the reaction to the vaccine that I think demonstrably helped us subdue what was a uh, monstrous pandemic. Um, But science and experts generally have become targets in our politics. And I'm wondering, does that worry you? Because we live in a time when there's exponential growth in discovery, some of which could be very important to dealing with the problems that we grapple with, but a lot of skepticism about science, about funding it, about adhering to the uh, discoveries that might be helping. You know what I mean? I just, do you see that tension? Or, or am I imagining it? No, you're not imagining it. And yes, it is. Um, I'm frightened by it, very concerned. I think as most scientists, especially people who've been in the field a long time, as I have. And there is a, a growing, uh, there's been an increased skepticism and in some places lack of trust in some fields in science. People would say science. But I think it's, it started, like I was saying earlier, in the fields where people see that the science is affecting them or could affect them and where policy makers see that it can make a difference in their policy. 
And so the the COVID was like a perfect storm for this, dealing with human lives. And you had to make policy on what looked like to a layperson on the on the scientific results that were not quite proven. I mean, you also were making policy about livelihoods as well. Live jobs, lives Mm -hmm. and livelihoods, right. And the things, you weren't always correct because they were developing these vaccines and treatments and trying to understand things as they were moving along. But you couldn't wait. It would have been irresponsible to wait. And we see how many lives we saved. Right. And so people don't look back and say, God, that's a miracle. It really was a miracle that we are sitting here now, no mask. It's two years that they did this. However, they weren't correct all the time at the right time. So I think that's when it began this, this distrust spill over into beyond the social sciences, down into the biological sciences, the biomedical sciences. People still trust astronomers. So when you say distrust in science, right? You know they love the James Well telescope. But it is that. But yeah. you you're yeah. right to identify yeah. the the sort of where the friction occurs. Yeah. It occurs where you're asking people to make sacrifices. Climate is another example. Climate, where you're saying we need to do away with fossil fuels as a means of uh, of, of subduing climate change. But there are a lot of people who make money, not just investors and oil companies, but workers who make money in these jobs who feel like you know why do i have to give up my job and so on and i i don't i i actually don't think we we probably handled that discussion the right way because those are valid concerns and we moralize about what people's responsibilities are but nonetheless these this tension exists and now these it's become almost a cultural not just political but a cultural distinction to be disdainful of experts and scientists telling us how we have to live our lives. Yeah, I think that's true. And I don't think we've handled it well. I, I don't think we brought enough humility, I would use the yeah. word, to uh, proposing policy based on science results in areas where the proof can simply not be shown as it can be said because mathematical way and even some of the physical sciences, you can never prove that climate change is happening because it's happening. You're looking at it as it's happened. But beyond that, it's now become just a litmus test, right, of where you, of what, where you stand politically or yeah. culturally. Do you believe in climate change? Believe like it's a faith. You know? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in the Holy Trinity? Right? And so, yeah, it's uh, the science doesn't seem to. It, I mean, it's gone beyond the science. It's just become a political and cultural divide, which is, of course, we know is not helped by people who see that as a way to advance their own political futures and careers by capitalizing on that fear that people have and distrust. One last thing on this, because science broadly includes technology, and AI is now advancing at a, a real clip, and these things do advance exponentially. Are you concerned about that? And, and are we sufficiently prepared for the implications of that? Or is this going to be another chapter where people's lives are dislocated and we see political backlash? 
stuff. Let me just say, I'm not an expert. No, I understand. AI, I know, but no. I, I, I've been following it. It scares me. Mm-hmm. It's actually, I'm very frightened. And why? Because I don't think the people who are experts fully understand the implications of where this might take us. And not every actor in the game of promoting AI has the, the best intentions for benefiting humankind. If you think people could exploit fossil fuel development and, and natural resources, the way people will be able to exploit AI seems to me is steps way beyond that. And we won't even know it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So it scares me. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. You went to the University of California afterwards, and you were, you were uh, uh, I guess, provost there. I was. And then, which is a pretty good job, by the way. That, that's quite a system, and you were in a good spot. But you left to go back to Morehouse and become president of Morehouse. Talk about that decision and what it meant to you, and talk about the importance of historically black universities and colleges. I, when I left NSF, I was offered the position of provost of University of California, and as you hinted at, it's, it's everyone agrees it's the best public university, including oversight on several world. national labs, as all well. the national, the three national labs. So I was a, I was back in the national lab business, you might say, like a kid in a candy store. That's right. Even more, I had the weapons labs. I, I had to learn. I was like jobs where you learn new things. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn all about the weapons industry, uh, research and industry at Los Alamos and Livermore. And the president at the time, Jack Pelterson, who, interestingly enough, was chancellor at Urbana when I was at Urbana. And I got to know Jack because... I got so involved working on issues with black students that the, I met with the president a lot. So Jack was president of the system. And he said, I'm 70 years old. This is the number two position in the system. You, you love it. People I really want you to come. And I'm not going to be around much longer. And I can't guarantee you'll be president. But, you know, if you're number two here, and you're I'll be spot, pushing it for yeah. you. So I went for, the, for both those reasons job itself, but that I thought, well, if I do well here, I have a shot becoming president of the largest, yeah, best public university system in the country. But I was there about a year, <laughs> you know, a little over a year, and Morehouse alumni began to call. And because the president of Morehouse had resigned very suddenly, there was issues there with the board, and they were looking for a new president. And a lot of the alumni, faculty, and others wanted me to come back. I did not at first. I had I'd not been to a small college since I graduated from Morehouse. And you know, my career was in major first um, 
research universities. I was in the big science. That was my field. But they prevailed and convinced me that I should come back and I I'd convinced myself, really, that I uh, owed it to Morehouse, really, and that I could probably do more there than I could do to advance issues of, uh, of black advancement than I could at California. But what tipped it, two things. Shirley, one night I came home from Your travel. Wife, yeah. yeah, my wife, Shirley. I uh, had asked our two sons to travel out there for us to discuss it. One lived in Bolden, the other lived here in Chicago. And when I came home from work, they were there. <laughs> so we talked about it, and they thought that I should go to Morehouse, and I made a difference. The other thing, everything, a lot of things in life are human-related, not policy, was my freshman roommate, a guy named John Hops. John went on to get a PhD in physics also, went to MIT, and he was deputy director of a major lab associated with MIT, the Draper Lab. They do defense research. And John flew out to California to have dinner with me. And he said, you know, you really should go back, Walt. And uh, if you do, you go back, I'll go back with you to help in any position you want. Hmm. I said, you, I said, what about June? June is his wife, and we were all in school together. And she was dean of the social sciences at Boston College. He said, June agreed. So that made me think, this, you know, I need to really take this seriously. That's when I started. So I, I went back to Morehouse, yes. I've got very little time, and uh, <laughs> more. your career, as I noted, is such that um, I got a number of other things here. But I just want you to um, talk about, first of all, the value of liberal arts. because, And I meant to ask you this earlier when, when we talked about the fact that you went thinking you were going to study music, and you ended up studying physics. And that's, of course, the beauty of a liberal arts education, where you're exposed broadly to so many things. And I think it's, it's undervalued now. I think people think, well, it doesn't necessarily lead you to a career, or it's not preparatory for a specific career. But talk about that. Make the case for liberal arts colleges, and talk about the importance of historically black universities and colleges. Well, one of the reasons I really felt I should go back to Morehouse is because without that education, I'm pretty sure I would not have been able to do what I could do. And it was not just the physics. It was the liberal arts. I mean, I left Hattiesburg, Mississippi out of the 10th grade. And when I took my first course in religion, I was almost shocked to find out not everybody was Christian and not everybody was Baptist. <laughs> that, that there were Buddhists, Jainists, Zoroastrians, uh, and the philosophy. My first philosophy course was eye-opening and history. So Morehouse really gave me a broad liberal arts education. I would have gone into history if I hadn't gone into physics, but I just fell in love with that when I was at Morehouse. And I've seen throughout my career how that broad background has helped me. But it's not my uh, appreciation of the liberal arts and seeing their value. It's not just personal experience. I've seen it on so many students over the years that have had it Brown, especially when I was at Brown, and the dean there, who dean of the undergraduate college. And I was there when we put in a new curriculum and then at Morehouse, which is all undergraduate, 
And you just see how these students who come in, many, especially in a place like Morehouse, not so much Brown, where students come in almost as um, uninformed and no experience about a lot of broad issues or directions, and they learn so much there. By, they're exposed to so many things in the liberal arts, and they they learn about themselves. You know, how 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 do you know you you are not interested in history? How do you know you don't want to be a philosopher? How do you know what philosophy is? And people decide they take a course. You know, decide this is something I want right. to do. And if you actually look, and there have been a number of surveys, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences does these a lot. Look at the people who are successful in many fields, business people who run large corporations. Many of them have these undergraduate liberal arts degrees. I was, I think that one last time we talked, or maybe before that, I, I, I mentioned how concerned I was when President Obama made some disparaging remark about art historians. Yes. You remember that, uh, art history. What's the value of an art history degree? Well, art, his, art history is probably one of the most valuable fields or uh, areas you can study if you want to have a broad understanding of human society. Well, you, yeah. you say that in part because you also, among your <laughs> many, right. many titles, were uh, president of the school at the Art Institute of Chicago. And that's so. where I learned that. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. HBCUs. I think they're more needed now then probably since they began and when there were no other opportunities, there are very few for blacks to get a higher education. And over the years, as other places have opened up, many of the schools have really suffered. But they all, many of them, they've survived and some have still managed to prosper. But now, given this affirmative action decision about the Supreme Court, I think it's going to be very necessary to have excellent, thriving, prosperous uh, HBCUs for uh, students to attend. And there are many students now, second uh, generation removed from their parents who went to uh, historically black college, who want to go back and have that experience, to be in an environment where you're not a minority. And unlike what people might think, the schools are not racist, they're not closed. They've always accepted and been open to white students. Not, not a lot have gone over the years. But if you look at the graduates of these schools, they're people who go out and thrive in every area of life, who are quite capable and competent of dealing with people of various social and ethnic, different ethnic backgrounds. And I have a theory about and that is that people who are most successful in dealing with people of different backgrounds are people who have confident who are confident in themselves, who have a full an understanding of who they are, and they don't feel inferior because they are of a different race and ethnic background. So they're able to enter arenas feeling as an equal in their minds, and therefore they're more willing to accept people. Other races and one of my pals, Bakari yeah. Sellers, is a alum. Of he's a Morehouse. Morehouse. Guy, one yeah. of my students. Yeah, and, and he's a prime <laughs> example of what you're talking about. I mean, he is a he's a uh, force of nature. One other thing, I just have to ask you about. Uh, there's so much I could ask you about, yeah. but uh, you did a little stint at the Bank of America at a really, really significant time in American financial history. 
in 2009 and 2010, you were on the board there in the middle of the financial crisis. And I was wondering, A, how you ended up there at that particular time. I know you've, you've, been on the, you've been on so many corporate boards that I could probably chew up a whole podcast just listing them. But tell me about that period of how you got there. And you obviously went knowing that this was a difficult time. Well, not really. I'd been on the board. I joined, asked to join corporate boards when I was director of Argonne here in Chicago. So I began to move in circles of uh, corporate leaders, mm-hmm. and I was asked to join boards. And one of the boards I was asked to join was the First National Bank of Chicago. Mm-hmm. It, went, it was bought by J.P. Uh, Morgan in the end. And when I had to resign from all boards when I went to the National Science Foundation, so I did. But when I went to California, my colleagues here at First Chicago called, told their his counterpart, the CEO of Bank of America, and who was based in San Francisco, that I was moving there and I had been the good director here. And if they were looking for a director, he should meet me. And I did. And they asked me, I joined the Bank of America board in California. Then we merged with Nations Bank in North Carolina, and we kept the name for the... I see. So I had been on Bank of America a number of years. And so in 2009, when we were in the middle of this crisis, that's when they asked me to be chair of the board. But I I had been there a while, so I was one of the longest-serving directors, but still it was a, a major shock to me when I was asked because I'm not a banker. And we had many bankers on the board. So it was a big surprise. And I didn't know, none of us knew how much of a crisis it would be until I became chairman. And uh, it's a long story, and I've written about it. But I I was informed by the Federal Reserve in Washington to go to Richmond and meet with the head of the regional Federal Reserve that oversaw Bank of America. And at that meeting, he pointed out to me, the head of the Fed, all of the problems and issues that he expected the board and me as chair to deal with. And that's when it became a full-time job. I mean, I I can just tell you from my time in the White House during that period that we would, for some period of time, every day you'd come to work, and there was a real concern that the whole financial system could collapse. People who are not in it, who were not involved in it, it to the depth that you were in my uh don't realize how scary it was and how close I think we came to that possibly happening. Yeah, frightening time. Yeah. So uh, now I should point out that, yes, you went to the Art Institute. You also, you're still involved with the University of Chicago, not just as a board member, but you've worked on this giant Magellan telescope project. W- what is that? So the Giant Magellan Telescope is a telescope being built. It will be the largest ground-based telescope in the world. The mirror surface would be about 25 meters, a little over 80 feet in diameter for the mirror. And it's been built by a consortium of universities and countries. And the University of Chicago is one of those. Harvard, Smithsonian, Arizona, I won't name them all, Mm -hmm. Korea, Australia, Brazil. And and what, what what will the Magellan, giant Magellan, do for us? Well, if you've seen the James Webb, if you're in awe and 
fascinated by that. First of all, those images you see on the James Webb, we will have a resolution about four times better than that. Mm. So you would be much sharper. We can see them closely. Also, we will have instruments, many more instruments, to analyze the light that comes from those images. The universe, how did it begin? How did the first stars, galaxies form? Those are fascinating things I've learned. And now with the web, we see that some of the uh, theories are uh, about that are now being upset because they're learning that things, galaxies, I think one of the things began to form much earlier than astronomers had thought. So that's one. How did the universe, not how the universe began, but how did it develop? How did it grow? How did we get from nothing and from a big bang to galaxies, to stars, planets, life. Then we're going to look at what are called exoplanets, planets that are around stars that look like they might be close enough to our, what we see on the relation between our mm-hmm. star and Earth, that they might have conditions for life like we understand life. So we'll be able to look at that. That's one of the main things yeah. that we have that first instrument we'll look at. And other things like you people have heard of dark matter, dark energy, we'd be able to get more information to be able to try to understand those entities. So I hope people who are listening understand my enthusiasm about your incredible journey because you are, as you, you know, you joke about it, you know, I'm not an astronomer, I'm not a banker, I'm not an nuclear energy expert i'm not except you have mastered all of these things all while advocating for education and teaching and leading education institutions quite a journey for a kid from hattiesburg mississippi true true <laughs> i mean do you ever look back and say how did this all happen i was in hattiesburg last year no this earlier this summer right there's an entity at the university here that's making a film about me, about how one becomes a scientist. And we went to Hattiesburg to film some shots. And I went and visited with my oldest friend, the one who started with me in the Blue Gardenias in the seventh grade. Ah, yes, Ralph. the Blue Gardenias. So, yes, Ralph and I, just going back with this film crew in Mississippi, have begun to reflect probably more than I have in years on how far it's come and how fortunate, how lucky I am. You're also a great role model for a lot of a lot of people. Walter Massey, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.